Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet. Each week, I'll be bringing you stories of people living lives of fruitful service, of peace, community, compassion, creative action, and progressive efforts. I'll be tracing the spiritual roots that support and nourish them in their service, hoping to inspire and encourage you to sink deep roots and produce sacred fruit in your own life. Let us sing this song for the dreaming of the world. Some people do great world healing work with barely a passing thought to the conceptual framework that informs, supports, and motivates their work. And then there are some, like today's Spirit in Action guest, Pamela Boy Sims, who have a deeply rooted worldview which powers and directs their lives. Pamela refers to herself as a Buddhist Quaker evolutionary culture designer, addressing the many faces of earth care, including her work along the way as convener of the Mid-Atlantic Transition Hub. A born and raised American of color, Pamela's life path included many years of living in Africa, as well as many years living in a Buddhist monastery. Pamela Boy Sims joins me in person for today's visit at Niagara University campus in New York before an audience of attenders of the 2017 Friends General Conference week-long gathering. Pamela, I am completely thrilled to have you here today for Spirit in Action. Well, thank you for the opportunity. Folks, Pamela and I had the good opportunity of speaking a week or two ago and starting to get to know one another, and I really feel connected with Pamela. There are always points of connection with whomever I meet, but our shared experience with Africa was a part of my deep, heartfelt connection to this woman. Could you explain a little bit of your trajectory, Pamela, that leads you here today? In terms of the professional and personal trajectory as opposed to the spiritual trajectory. I ended up in Africa, in Senegal in particular, when my now ex-husband, current best friend, was setting up a nine-country bank for Chase Manhattan Bank. He was a senior vice president, and he set up a bank for nine countries in the Sahel. And we were based in Dakar, Senegal. He's Cameroonian. So I spent a lot of time going up and down the coast. We were there from 80 to 85. In that time, I went from being a Chase Manhattan Bank entertaining wife. I got very bored being a Chase wife. Did my master's degree there, had two children there. My first two sons had dual citizenship for quite a while. After we left, we went back very often until I began to see the infrastructure. We were there under the, when the founding president was still there, uh, Senghor. And that was a period where it was just unparalleled. He was a true statesman. And the French expatriate community was extremely strong there. We were in a kaleidoscope of expatriate communities. It was the French, the diplomatic community, the American diplomatic community, the American banking community, because that was where my husband was. And it was just an amazing life. It was a parenthesis in eternity, literally. It was like living in an oasis for five years. 
when we went back, little children in tow, we could see the disintegration spiral after Senghor left. We were there just as Abdu Diouf took over from Senghor. And that was a guy that came in and his family literally ate the whole economy. So we saw the infrastructure crumble. And I, I'm working with the UN now for Quaker Earth Care Witness. And I just talked to a Senegalese forester who happens to be living in the United States. And you, like you and I, we hit it off immediately. And he said, the president that came after Abdou Diouf, Wad, came in and literally rebuilt the infrastructure. So it's now time for me to go back. That's an exciting time. How was that formative for where you eventually got to? You say you got a degree during that period. Which degree? It was a degree that I did because I was bored, African literature and French. The degree that really was the launching pad was uh, Georgetown Foreign Service. I took the Foreign Service exam and did fine, I passed, but I never went into the American Foreign Service. I went directly to Senegal from there. My grandfather, who's a Barbadian, a Garveyite, and a historian, said to me when I was a little tiny person that I was going to end up at the U.N., I don't know if he planted this in my brain so that I went into international affairs and I did foreign service, but that has always been a passion of mine. And now I spend three months a year for Quaker Earth Care Witness at the UN as per my grandfather. So let's talk a little bit about your spiritual journey as well, because you start off Anglican. Where did you grow up as a kid? I grew up in northern New Jersey. My family was very, very West Indian. We went back to Barbados every single Easter for 21 days, for as long as I can remember being conscious. So uh, very rooted in, I say Anglican as opposed to Episcopal, because it was definitely the Church of England, the High Church of England. So I went through that whole process. My parents had me go through confirmation, and as a teenager, I taught Sunday school. I mean, I did that whole thing. But then the book, uh, The Secret Life of Plants, fell off an esoteric bookstore shelf at me, literally fell off. It was when Krillian photography was coming out. You could actually see the auric, the energy fields around plants, and you would break off a piece of plant, and you could literally see the colors change. It was when they first could capture that. Now it's just a science that's kind of taken for granted, especially with quantum science. We know what the energy fields look like. But at 14, that was my introduction to the fact that what we see physically is such an infinitesimally small part of reality. So from that understanding of life as energy, I kind of went totally down that rabbit hole. I went from that understanding and understanding a metaphysical understanding of the universe through first theosophy, then anthroposophy, then Gurdjieff work. But as you probably know, Colonel Alcott and Madame Blavatsky of theosophy were the people who brought Buddhism to the West. So all the way through theosophy and anthroposophy also is the study of the threads that run through world religions in an esoteric as opposed to exoteric approach. So Buddhism was always there. It was always been a thread. And as I was studying Gurdjieff, I never dropped any of those things. I went through the process and understood the Gurdjieff cosmology, again, a very metaphysical understanding of how energy and magnetic fields and where human beings fit into this and the fact that it's all undifferentiated, etc. 
But Gurdjieff himself had a very Sufi approach to the world. And I should mention, outside of those formative years in the Anglican Church, I've really never been involved in an exoteric spiritual tradition, the outer trappings and the religiosity since age 14. It's always been an esoteric, the mystery school underpinnings, the inner side. For example, Christianity would be Gnosticism. Judaism would be the Kabbalah. The internal side of Islam is Sufism, which really is very different than Islam, just like Kabbalists see very differently than the Jewish folks. So Gurdjieff had, as part of his Sufism aspect of their Gurdjieff work, you go through a period where you're taught by a teacher. The teacher kind of finds you. It's a very serendipitous kind of thing. It's not like you enter something. People in the Gurdjieff work, they kind of serendipitously appear in your life. If you're standing in the flow of cosmic energy, shall we say, the energy flow and you're staying open and you're receptive to light and receptive to spirit, people just show up in your life. And the Gurdjieff guy happened to be my dentist. When you go into his office, he had, where your face is up like this, so he's doing your teeth, he had a big mandala on the ceiling. So I knew there's something up with this guy. <laughs> so just like that, the Gurdjieff teachers started to come out of the woodwork. And what you, when you do Gurdjieff work, there's a whole training you go through. You go through an individual teacher, and then there's a group process always gathered, the sangha in Buddhism, the community is extremely important. So I went through several work weekends, tons of individual practice. But then you get to the point in Gurdjieff work where you, I had to go into Manhattan and actually be part of the Gurdjieff Foundation. At that point, I realized who was practicing Gurdjieff work. And it was the teacher that I was transferred to had this place on Park Avenue that was just the most incredible. It was like a library on multiple different floors. It was an esoteric bookstore delight. It was absolute heaven. But then I realized as I started moving in the Manhattan circles that this was the 1%, a, a specific aspect of the 1%, the very spiritually attuned part of that whole world. And when I went with that teacher in Manhattan into the foundation to continue my studies, there are two things that said exit stage left. First of all, the study became very dry and brittle. It became very, very cerebral. And in all of these traditions, anthroposophy, theosophy, and Buddhism, and Gurdjieff work, meditation and deep contemplative practice was like breathing. But the Gurdjieff folks, it was just so staid and very Anglo. And I realized, where am I? <laughs> so there was that. And then there was the fact that the movements are very similar to whirling dervish kind of movements. So they had this whole thing you had to go through. And there were martial arts kind of sticks to it and the rest of it. That did not resonate with me. So the echoes of anthroposophy and Buddhism and theosophy and the being part of a Tibetan Buddhist community, because I'd already started going back and forth to a monastery long before that. I, I spent a lot of time in a monastery. Called to me, because the Tibetans, it's all about heart. It's all about compassion. It's all about community. It's all about connection. And the juxtaposition of this Gurdjieff brain work and the Tibetan... I was in a monastery that had a um, Chinese community, Taiwanese, a obviously, a Tibetan community, and an American community, the kind of concentric circles of folks. 
And the heart and the love and the compassion drew me out of the Gurdjieff work. And I said, fine for you guys. You guys really, the cosmology, intellectually, and understanding of the undifferentiated energy field and universal intelligence, you totally have that. But I need the heart. So at that point, I jumped ship completely. I had been a Buddhist practitioner since a teenager. Buddhism had always been there. I'd been a student and a practitioner. At that point, I took refuge and I spent four years in a monastery. Before that, I had literally pretty much moved to Woodstock, which is my monastery is in the mountains behind Woodstock, specifically chosen because the Mid-Hudson Valley is like no other place on the planet is a power node that's amazing. Every two feet in the Hudson Valley, you trip over an ashram or a monastery, or it's just heaven, nirvana. How close is that to where Pete Seeger lived? Oh, right there. Right there, New Pulse, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Actually, I work with the Clearwater folks. I, I was also part of an environmental movement that worked very closely with Pete Seeger's Clearwater. So anyway, at that point, I jumped ship from, I, you know, anthroposophy and theosophy and Gurdjieff, it's always going to be part of me because the, the profound understanding of the internal dynamics of the universe, the manifest universe and the unmanifest universe, they gave me a tremendous understanding. But in terms of a practice, silence and stillness and the compassion of the Tibetan community was just unparalleled. So I just put everything else. I banked that information. You see, I go here as opposed to head and took refuge in Buddhism. And then to bring this forward, I was looking for a contemplative boarding school for my last son. I have four children three adult sons and an adult daughter. And the Cameroonian guy that, for which I was in Africa, at some point I said to him, Louis, I absolutely adore you, but I have a path of service here. And at that point I became monastic. And I divorced, I said, he's my best friend now. And I said, we'll be best friends forever. And these kids are our heart, but I have something else to do. We never parted ways. We just kind of got divorced and checked into that monastery. But I was 100% living, breathing, eating, and sleeping my practice. And I wanted that for my last son. My first son took refuge, and my other two children did not. But from the time they were tiny children, they've had a metaphysical understanding of the universe so that they've never had to really deal with a lot of the goop the outer, outer world throws at people of color. What do you mean when you say he took refuge? You say you take refuge in just recognizing Buddha, Dharma, Sangha, which means the teachings that came through Siddhartha Gautama, him being a teacher like Jesus or many other teachers, the Dharma being the teaching itself and pledging your life to live the teaching, not cerebrally, not as a point of reference or something you do sometimes or just live a good life, but to be it. That's the Dharma. And the Sangha is like beloved community. It's the community. So when you take refuge, you kind of accept those three things as your life. So having done that, I wanted my last son to have a contemplative practice. I bring up the divorce because at that point, I realized that I was already full tilt into monastic life. My husband had basically gone back and chased Manhattan world, but he was an investment banker. So I needed that formation for my son, and I wanted to be contemplative. And of course, there are Buddhist universities, but there are no Buddhist boarding schools at high school. So I went to the epicenter. I went to Westtown, Pennsylvania. He interviewed at every Quaker school I could find. 
and Westtown was as Quaker as I could find. So he enrolled there, and because I didn't want to just put him in a boarding school and leave him there, I tried to discover how I could best be of service to Westtown. And I'm a therapist. So his four years at Westtown, I spent doing meeting for reading on socioeconomics. And I worked with Quaker parents who had been born into money, who had conflicted relationships with money, who felt guilty about their money, who had been born into money and lost their money, who never had money and wanted money, all kinds of Quaker relationships with money. And I would run group for parents, and I dug a groove between northern New Jersey, where I was living at that time, and Westtown, Pennsylvania. And in the process, I started going to Quaker meeting. Hence the intersection. My monastery was Taiwanese, American, and Tibetan. And for my taste, there was too much sitting on your cushion. And as soon as I got a taste of the stillness and the meditative contemplative practice in Quakerism and the social justice connection, I was there. So the two intersected, and that is bringing you up to date. And so engaged Buddhism happened somewhere along the way. I don't know, the 1970s, 80s, Thich Nhat Hanh, that whole thing. I guess it follows up on Thich Nhat Hanh's departure from Vietnam that it becomes more accessible to us in the West. Is that very different? I mean, the Taiwanese, do they have engaged Buddhism threads? Oh, absolutely. The Buddhist world in the United States is absolutely amazing. If you know the Mid-Hudson Valley, Blue Cliff Monastery is up there. The abbess is a Vietnamese nun who's a very, very good friend of mine. The Order of Interbeing came about because Thich Nhat Hanh's village kept getting blown up by the Americans, and every time the Americans would blow it up, he would bring everybody together and build it back up again, and the Americans would blow it up again. But engaged Buddhism, I'm giving you this example because he literally typifies, exemplifies the engaged Buddhism of the Order of Interbeing because after the war, Thich Nhat Hanh spent decades holding retreats for the same American vets that blew up his village, that were completely overcome with guilt and pain, of course, PTSD and all kinds of things. And here was this little tiny Vietnamese monk working with the psychology and the emotional being and the spirituality of men who had decimated his family, his community, everything. These men would just literally break down in front of him. Same feeling as Nelson Mandela in South Africa with the Peace and Reconciliation Commission. You get to a point when you truly understand no self. You truly understand emptiness that allows you to be and feel and experience light. And everything else, the division between him and those bomber pilots was non-existent for him. And a Western mind finds that very difficult to believe and understand. That's why these men were literally, they just came apart when he saw them. He saw their wholeness. When you operate from spirit, when you operate from light as a Buddhist or a Quaker that goes there all of the time does, division is just such an ephemeral ridiculousness. 
So he exemplifies engaged Buddhists in a very different way than the Tibetan. There are four Tibetan schools. The Dalai Lama is the head of one Tibetan school. The head of my lineage is a Karmapa, who's a young Karmakagyu Rinpoche, who's under the wing of the Dalai Lama at this point. They are the deeply contemplative folks, even though the, the Karmapa is the age of my daughter at this point. He's just turned 33. You know, the, they come back around. That being said, he's much more engaged, and he's engaged because he can look out of the window of the monastery in Jiaotu, which is in Dharamsala, where they're both in exile, both the Dalai Lama and the Karmapa, and he can see glacial melt on the Tibetan plateau. Climate change is happening exponentially faster on the Tibetan plateau. So he can literally watch the degradation of the earth given the warming. So he mandated all of his monasteries throughout the world, which is why I just joined the Quaker Peace Teams in Nepal. And the woman who runs it got me on the monasteries. He mandated every single monastery, Tibet, Bhutan, uh, Nepal, and where I was living at the time in Woodstock to be environmentalists where the monasteries were located. So that's how I came in, into the transition environmental movement because in the monastery I was the development officer. I was the point person for the head of the lineage in North America for the green movement in the monastery. And I was told to find an environmental movement where your monastery is located that resonates to our practice. Basically, everyone has a voice. It is a groundswell of direct connection. It's not a hierarchical kind of thing. And the transition environmental movement resonated as close as I could get in an environmental movement because it was local resilience building, not flash in the pan, hold aside, march outside. It was literally hunker down and prepare for climate change because that's what the head of the lineage was doing in Dharamsala. Came to find out years later, that the founder of the transition environmental movement was a devotee of the Dalai Lama, Rob Hopkins, in England. So it makes sense that it resonated immediately. I felt that because the guy who came up with the transition environmental movement was also Buddhist. Wow. So there are about 20 threads of conversation I want to follow up on. And part of what I'm wrestling with is at a certain point, there's part of embodied practice that's important to you, and there's part of it that doesn't call to you. You were talking about those outward ways of doing things that were less interesting to you, but it's absolutely essential that your spiritual practice have real ramifications in the world. I'm trying to sort out what is embodied and what isn't from your point of view. I hope that's not too oblique of an expression. There are contemplative traditions where people are focused on contemplative practice, and that's it. That is extremely important. I've had conversations with Trappist monks and Benedictines and folks that literally, if they were not sitting on their cushions, doing their chanting, the Gregorian chants, it's not just Buddhist monks. It is George Fox walking around, for goodness sake. And Quakers sitting on that bench for 370 years. But if those monks had not been sitting with their longhand calligraphy, singing their chants, and when the world was at its darkest point, things could have skidded off much faster than they did. Things could have gotten a lot darker and deeper than they did. So I'm not casting an aspersion at all on someone who devotes their life. And there are a lot of people in my lineage that 
first year I got there, I was going to do Earth Day, an interfaith Earth Day, so the monastery would get into the community. And I said, Kempola, uh, would you speak and offer the first invocation for this? And he said, leave it to the Nagas. The Nagas are the water beings. Basically, for him, he sat on that cushion, and he, because he can commune in this way with the unseen, the Nagas, who are spirits, what Native American people would say, the water spirits, etc. And for him, that was just like breathing. He said, why are you doing this? Why are you doing this transition environmental movement? Sit on your cushion and talk to the Nagas. You know, and I'm saying this to say I'm not casting any aspersion on that because if we did not have the Dominicans and the Benedictines and the Trappist monks and all of the Theravadan monks, the monastic community around this world has literally held down the fort for this planet. So it's extremely important. I personally feel like Noah. I need to actually say, get in this ark, it's coming. So it's just a different approach. And we're going to find out a lot more about Noah and Pamela Boyce Sims in just a moment. I do want to remind listeners that you're tuned in to Spirit in Action, which is a Northern Spirit Radio production on the web. That means you'll find us at northernspiritradio.org, where we have about 12 years of our programs there for free listening and downloading. We've talked to all kinds of folks across the globe doing all kinds of world healing work. And of specific interest to us is finding the spiritual threads that motivate and sustain people in that work, which is why we have Pamela Boy Sims here today talking about 21st century spirit-led activism. Also on the site, you'll find a place to post comments. You're hearing our voices, so we're doing our part in the conversation, but your part is equally essential. So please post a comment when you visit. And you can find our contact information. Let us know of other people who we should be talking with. We really do want to work together to get the message out. It's by shared voice that we have our greatest strength. Also, there's a place to donate to and support Northern Spirit Radio. Click on that button. Even more important, though, I'd say, is to make sure that alternative media has a strong base and support from you in your community. Make sure that your local community radio stations and other media are getting the word out. Right now, approximately 90% plus of our media is owned by just six conglomerates. So please, start by supporting your local community radio station and other local media. Again, Pamela Boy Sims is here. I first heard about her connection with the Transition Town movement. You can also find her writings at BuddhistQuaker.wordpress.com. BuddhistQuaker.wordpress.com is where you'll track down Pamela Boy Sims. Again, the link's on NordenSpiritRadio.org. So, Pamela, for the second half of our program, I want to get into some of the specific embodiments that you're doing of activism. So I'm going to start with transition work. You talk about how you're involving people with whom you've worked monastically, how you bring them into connection with this. And the first response I heard you got was, the Nagas will take care of this. That from one point of view, it feels to me like you said, no, Nagas aren't talking. Their voices are so still and soft. They're not listening these days. We produce such a clamor that we can't hear the Nagas these days. That's well said, clamor. That particular Rinpoche that said that, 
I don't think he was tuned into how end-stage corporate capitalism has basically degraded the world of the Nagas to the extent that they're crying out. It's more challenging for light to be light because human beings have misqualified it. There's only light. There's only love. But human beings have misqualified it so much that it's buried very often. So the Nagas are having a bit of a difficulty. With Westtown and working with, with economic issues and money issues with parents, what became really clear to me was the fact that I needed to do something that, I'll just put it straight out, I recognized a Buddha in George Fox. That was what sealed it for me, sealed Quakerism for me. All a Buddha is is a, an enlightened being, and that's what this ministry that I'm doing is. This is a being, George Fox, who lived simultaneously in the conventional world, the world where I see you, there's a desk, there's a table, there's a chair. And then there is the realm that we don't see, which is most of reality. George Fox lived both simultaneously. He was enlightened, which is why a lot of friends say to me, if George Fox walked into a Quaker meeting today, he'd probably be drummed out of there on his ear because he looked like a crazy person. That's why the ministry is called Rekindling the Fire of Fox. He was on fire because he was able, like Jesus or many other avatars, Siddhartha Gautama, to hold the space for both. So my initial contact with Quakerism and what was potentially possible if more than a small swath of friends actually went back to the original practice of George Fox and learned what Western philosophy and theology has taken out of all of the Western books. And that is the process of how to truly connect with the undifferentiated energy field, light spirit. Quakers can go there. At these points of light, the folks that I'm kind of gathering as I go around to do this work now, the, the social transformation work, there are a subset of Quakers that still go there when they sit on that bench. Those are the activists that I'm looking for, people who really are on fire from marrying what Fox did, marrying contemplative practice and living it in the world, modeling it in the world. Because the reason why I talked about 21st century activism we can rearrange the deck chairs on the Titanic as much as we want, but we cannot use 20th century cerebral analytical deconstruction of social and political problems to tackle 21st century problems. It's impossible. The problems defy that. The problems themselves are now complex adaptive systems. The old activism is not going to work. Friends have it. Friends have the DNA. We have the doorway through which we can walk to do what Buddha George Fox did if we stop doing Quaker L-I-T-E. <laughs> Who needs that light stuff? So about George Fox... And, you know, there's going to be a lot of listeners to this program who have no idea who this George Fox dude is. You know, mid-1600s over in England, he's a little-known dude, right, uh, at least for non-Quakers. But people listening all over the country to these programs are saying, who is this dude and why does this make any difference? You say he got it. He knew about changing the world. Why 
at that time in history did he recognize and did Quakers embrace the idea that men and women are, in terms of spirit, equal, which was so out of step with the Church of England at that time. It's just so radical to say they're equal. There are plenty of churches in the U.S. right now who still aren't going to go there. Many still adamantly hold that women have to be subservient to men, etc. Over 350 years ago, boom. To George Fox, it's clear that men and women are completely equal, and he and his cohorts, these mid-1600 Quakers, I think that's radical, and I think that's part of what you're talking about here. But I would like you to spell it out. So what did George Fox see back then that was so world-transforming? Well, long before he saw in 1652, he, at 19 years old, he got it. He was already training himself. The man was disciplined. He trained his mind. He trained his spirit from the time he was a teenager. There are people like that that are plopped into the world, that are the leaven in the bread. But in 1652, he actually said he was told that he should climb Pendle Hill. And he looked out over Pendle Hill, and he was given a vision of the people. Some of the texts say people in raiment, but he saw the groundswell of people that would eventually become the Religious Society of Friends. And he actually became an itinerant, I don't want to say preacher, that sounds very demeaning, but he was a missionary for light. And he went all over the world and witnessed all kinds of things. He went Barbados, where my family is from, and that's where he got slapped in the face with the reality of slavery, even though he didn't write about it until a while after that. But he was a luminary, which for him was not radical. He is one of many, many people, and I just mentioned a number of them in all of these different traditions, who pull back the veil, pull back the curtain to understand that what we're looking at here is nothing. The separation between men and women is laughable. Between races, between cultures, between economic strata. He was living in a highly class-oriented society as well. And he completely bucked authority, completely threw out the idea of anyone being beholden to anyone. For him, like any of the other avatars that I mentioned, he's just looking at reality. He's looking at the reality that we don't see in the West because we're trained with this either or, light, dark, black, white, good, evil. And that is all Cartesian, Newtonian garbage. And because Isaac Newton and uh, René Descartes and all of the, that's still being taught in the schools, our kids are still getting that sick thinking. Scientific method literally explains a little tiny corner of reality. And there's a whole vast interconnectedness that they just decided not to look at because it was inconvenient. George Fox, just like Jesus and Siddhartha Gautama before him and all these other folks, they were able to see the reality. It's almost laughable to think about these divisions. And the Greeks started it. They made it really worse for the people in the West. I and my father are one, was filtered through Greek polarity dualism. Then Descartes and Newton put the nail in that coffin. And then corporate capitalism that actually had to thrive on separating people so that that extraction exploitation of the earth could take place. 
and people could be exploited and people could be commodified and people could be set against each other, really amped it up, really fanned the flame under this completely erroneous Western philosophy. The indigenous people never lost it. Billions of Buddhists all over the world never lost it. Every traditional society that did not have their their religious books tampered with by patriarchal church fathers, they still got access to this. It's just the West that missed out. But Fox wasn't tuning into any book or anything else. He knew that Jesus of Nazareth also got it. He sensed that. He was feeling into the reality. He saw the reality. So ephemeral, superficial matrices of Western society's thinking, he was just so not there. Long answer to your question. And I have a pretty longish answer. And again, folks, we're speaking with Pamela Boyce Sims, and she just insulted one of my gods because I was a physics teacher. That's what I actually did in Africa. Just moved to quantum. <laughs> well, and, and I've studied quantum physics as well as the rest. I don't feel the opposition in what you said, by the way, because I am a deeply spiritual person, and I've had my own experiences directly with the light, and I do know that those things are true at the same time that other things are also true. One of the things I like to point out, for example, is that we have an experience of this table right here as being physical. On a physics level, I know that the table is waveforms and it's mostly empty space. And it's obvious to me that on one level, I can react to it as a physical thing because if I bump my head into it, it'll hurt. I will notice that. That hurt is another thought that one can deal with, but there are practical consequences that one can measure. And that's the physics world in which I live, which says nothing about what's right or wrong or good or bad or to be encouraged or not encouraged or to be given energy or not given energy. But I don't deny the physics. I'm pretty good at the physics part of it. And the spiritual thing, I think I've at least validly cut my teeth on so that I feel like I know that for this world to be better, for this world to be healed, there's a spiritual thing that has to happen and that the physical things will never get us there. I don't think a lot of people get that. I think maybe you're just making that clear for them. There's really no distinction between the two. That's the whole thing. We're limited by our language because you just made a distinction. There is no, there is no separation whatsoever. There's particle, there's wave, there's conventional world, there is the ultimate, which is light, etc. It's just a question of frequency, energy, and vibration. And you made me go through all my process, all of those things, anthroposophy, theosophy, Gurdjieff, quantum physics, neuroscience, neurobiology, all of those come together to inform the fact that we just automatically make that separation. Even if we say, become one with the light, right there, that is a separation. We are it. It's just you, Mark, have a certain frequency and energy and vibration that manifests as you and I, Pamela, have another one, and the desk has another one. And we now know that aside from the fact that this is mostly, it's not solid, we know that the space is intelligent energy. That is spirit. The space is not space in the typical vacuum kind of space that physics of even 15 or 20 years ago. It was quantum physics even. 
back Alfred North Whitehead, self as process, or Gregory Bateson, if you want to go from the epistemological perspective. We now know that it, that's living, vibrating space. It's intelligent energy. That is God. That is light. That is spirit. That is undifferentiated. It's not like a vacuum of space. So do you get more opposition from the people who are trapped in the physical perspective on things or from the people who are trapped in the spiritual? I mean, there are all kinds of people who are spiritually oriented but stuck on one particular wavelength as being the wavelength of everything. You know, you just say, God is, that's all God. And there are a lot of people who are going to want to kill you for that. And there are other people who say, I'm an atheist. Just get real. Let's talk about what's really going on. You know, because it's said that religion and maybe spirituality is the opiate of the masses. Mark, I'm a non-theist friend. So my point there is that I translate all of the time. So it doesn't bother me to say God, recognizing that I'm talking about an undifferentiated, intelligent, universal intelligent energy field which is, in fact, all about the well-being of this planet, the solar system, the universe, human beings. It's about love. And we connect through the heart center, not through the brain. That's a whole other topic. But I get more pushback from people. Who, and I was, I was at Quaker Spring up in Poughkeepsie two weekends ago, and we had this discussion. And a gentleman sitting next to me, he listened really intently. And then he looked at me and said, but what about good and evil? There are people that are so deeply immersed in duality that it really does not compute. And that's why the first year of this ministry is pulling the cocoa powder out of the brownie. I'm just putting the buffet out here and saying, friends, who among you get the fact that everything is unity? And it's interesting some of the Quaker traditions can imbibe it a bit easier because the folks, they had just come from a session where they were talking about good and evil. And I said to him, you know, here's a coin. And on one side you have evil, what you're perceiving as evil. On the other side you have good. It's the same coin. I talked about the shadow. And I talked about your gifts and the talents that is the light. The shadow is no less a part of you. It's no more bad than the rest of you. It's just been fragmented and pushed down into your subconscious and down into your unconscious self so you're not aware of it. So it looks big and thorny and yucky and evil. But it's the same side of the same coin. It's still you. It's still your energy. So the degree to the pushback comes from the degree to which people have taken in Cartesian and Newtonian thinking backed up by the Greeks and just accepted it lock, stock, and barrel, and can only see unidirectional, binary kinds of relationships. And in that case, I say, deep bow, friend. I honor the light. I put a smorgasbord out there. Some people just take all these dishes off the table and they just, just relish every morsel. Some people look at it and say, hmm, that's interesting. She must have three heads. And then some people say, hmm, that's interesting, and they walk away with a scowl on their face. Some people say, that's not interesting at all, and they start fomenting stuff. And some people just throw the table over because it's so antithetical to everything that their identity is invested in as a certain way of seeing a religious practice. 
because it's unidirectional thinking. And those folks, that's where they are, and that is just fine. But this first year of the ministry is connecting with people that are as on fire as George Fox. They get it. And we need to do that in order to build that foundation and build that momentum. And then there's always, as an activist and a um, from the transition environmental movement, et cetera, in terms of those groundswell kinds of bottom-up movements, you realize that in any given – and this is also Gurdjieff and Du Bois and Plato. A lot of philosophers have said this, that at any, any given point in time on the planet, about 80 percent of the people on the planet are – use Gurdjieff terms, which are not too nice, are organic fodder for the evolution of the planet. And they're extremely important because the planet Earth, Gaia, the living, breathing being that is Gaia, would be in big trouble without these human beings who have come into embodiment to hold down the fort for the Earth. That 80% doesn't want to evolve, though. They're not about self-transformation. They're not about transformation of anything. They're kind of holding down the fort. And that's important. And I honor that. And then there are the people like Fox and said Arthur Gautama and Jesus of Nazareth and, for that matter, Mother Teresa or Nelson Mandela. I mean, the people that get it. You read Dr. King and they, so many people do King Light, L-I-T-E. It's really absurd. And that really – it irks me sometimes. He was a good friend of Thich Nhat Hanh. He recommended him for the Nobel Peace Prize. King got it, but nobody understands the esoteric side of King. It's all marches and up and down, you know. So, but anyway, the point I'm making is that the anchoring oneself in the reality of there's a 10% group of people who get it, like those guys. There's an 80%, this is roughly any given point in time in embodiment on the planet, 80% of the people who are the organic fodder. And I, as a facilitator, as a transition, I no longer do the transition movement at all. And that's largely because that is a very small, narrow swath of folks who are not really interested in a comprehensive approach to things. So I took the DNA of transition, my Dear friend Rob Hopkins, a fellow Buddhist in the UK who started it, and I now offer that DNA to other movements. I'm no longer a part of that whole piece. So as a transition trainer, as a facilitator, as a speaker, I'm always looking for that threshold. Not the 80% who really have no interest. They can only see the physical world, and they're not interested in anything else. So be it, friend. And then you have all the foxes, and then you have... I speak as a, a facilitator to the threshold people. In this embodiment, they could either slide back into the 80%, and I don't want to make this seem as downward. It's just into that I don't want to evolve group. Or they could be on fire and move this planet forward. And right now, that's what we need. In the 21st century, we need people to step up in the ranks. We need people to step up and don't do Quaker light. Dig into what this avatar was saying to you in 1652. So that's the group of people that I speak to. I'd be banging my head up against a brick wall with the opposition of the 80%. Like the guy at Quaker Spring, you know, when he said to me, but what about good and evil? I said, okay, took a deep breath. But there's a part of that question that I think still that you have an answer for. It's the same energy, just horribly misqualified. But here's the question. Why bother doing something? I do something generally because I judge that something to be better than doing the alternative or alternatives. Call it good or evil, call it improvement, call it right direction. Why 
do something. That's what I think he was asking you. Oh, no, he wasn't. But I, I'll take that from you. <laughs> he had just come out of a session on people really wallowing in evil. To answer directly to your question, the reason why I do anything, why a Thich Nhat Hanh does anything, why George Fox came down from Pendle Hill and went to Furbank and started his ministry is because we as a human species are here to evolve. We are light and we are God, the indwelling light. And that is constantly moving toward a clearer more transparent, I don't want to say pure, because that doesn't sound right. The human spirit is constantly wanting to refine itself in a swath of people who are here to do that. Fox got that. That's what a bunch of people he saw in 1652 on Pendle Hill. He understood that there are people out there that are interested and here to evolve. And our evolution is completely tied up with the evolution of every other sentient being, every species on this planet, the planet itself, manifest universe itself, everything, galaxies, the novas, the stars, everything is in constant kaleidoscopic movement toward evolution. We are built that way. That's what we are about. And it's not, oh, someone is torturing me or oh, whatever. It's a question of constantly clearing away all of the obscurations, as Buddhists would say, or the cognitive distortion, therapists would say, or clearness, which Quakers would say. Whatever obscures your perspective and muddies the prism through which your leadings come when you get off of that bench is the same stuff that appears as evil in its most aberrant, extreme extent, like fossil fuel companies pumping all that junk up there that's heating up the planet, that's melting those glaciers, etc. It's obscuration. They can't see. They don't see. So the exhortation is clear away the garbage and the human brain actually colludes. That's the challenge coming into embodiment here. The human brain colludes to make it more difficult for us to not be see through those, these muddy lenses because the brain automatically filters out stuff. When we were first evolving, we had to worry about the saber-toothed tigers and the woolly mammoth, etc. So anything in our field that moves quickly, the shiny objects, you know, that move quickly, we automatically go there. We're very quickly distracted, which is why discursive thought or chattering mind is, is so prevalent in the West, because we're hardwired to filter for very specific things. And then in our childhood, in our upbringing, in our teachers, in our spiritual community, we were all trained in Descartes and Newton. We're all trained to see certain things. So I may be looking at this wall and this easel and... I could take in everything that's there if I'm Fox or Siddhartha Gautama or maybe Gandhi or I can take in the wholeness of what's there if my obscurations aren't there. And I'm constantly having to watch my thoughts, which is what this ministry invites people to do, to slow down thoughts, watch them, direct them so we're in control and not discursive mind. I have to constantly move this goop out of the way in order to see clearly because my brain is taking me – 
in terms of the way the human mind works to things that work for my survival, something that moves fast, something that distracts me. I'm automatically going there. So I'm having to train myself. I want to see more and more, and I want to focus, and I want to concentrate so that I can be a receptor. I can be a vessel for light because the prism is not muddy. I'm clearing, clearing, clearing. So that muddiness, when it's completely opaque, when it is buried in, ugh, that is the fossil fuel companies that are melting this planet and aided and abetted by Western thinking. They are completely oblivious to the reality of quantum existence, light, the undifferentiated. They're only thinking about monopoly world. That's why you, you ask them, are you thinking about your grandchildren? No. If I'm looking at you and I'm seeing three of you there together, what the Western world has taught me to see, the fossil fuel people to see, is the field narrows. So I see pretty much your nose instead of the rest of the field. That's all they're seeing. They're seeing money. They're seeing power and are intoxicated by that. And they're so disconnected. I spend a lot of time around the uber-wealthy, the whole chase experience. I also work with a lot of the next generation of the uber-wealthy who are deeply psychologically conflicted because of wearing the mantle of their parents' wealth. So I see how disconnected they are from the world. Their feet don't even touch the ground, never commercial anything, which is why the oligarchy in power now has no clue about how people suffer when healthcare is taken away. They have no points of reference for it. They live in a whole other world. I went to school with them. I taught them. I work with them as a therapist. They really have no clue. They see only monopoly world, only the conventional. And it looks like evil, and it looks like something that's very different than light. It's just, it's so disconnected and buried, that side of the coin. They're so deeply in shadow that it looks like there's no light there. But it's all the same energy stream. If we only had a couple more hours, I'm pretty sure that all of us, including the folks sitting here in the room with us at Niagara University as we talk, Pamela, (laughs) I'm pretty sure that we would all move evolutionarily a bit closer to that supreme consciousness, which is in light. We're friends. Right. We're, We're on the path. And I'm sure that Listeners who are hearing this across the country will also be moved to step closer to. There's so much more that I do want to talk with you about. And now that I've got your phone number, we'll be talking. (laughs) Okay. I want to point people to BuddhistQuaker.wordpress.com to follow up more with you as both your writings and thought continue to evolve. Thank you. I know that there's more ahead. I appreciate the fact that you actually carry your meditation into the world. I do find that particularly dear to my own heart. Thank you for that acknowledgement. So I thank you for spending the time here with us today and being a force for light increasing in the world. Thank you so much. It has been a pleasure, Mark. Thank you. I also want to thank Catherine Thomas for her major production help on today's program, and we'll see you all next week for Spirit in Action. The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. This Spirit in Action program is an effort of Northern Spirit Radio. You can listen to our programs and find links and information about us and our guests on our website, northernspiritradio.org. Thank you for listening. I am your host, Mark Helpsmeet, and I welcome your comments and stories of those leading lives of spiritual fruit. May you find deep roots to support you and grow steadily toward the light. 
This is Spirit in Action. With every voice.